0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up, terrible crimes happen to people each day. This Sunday marked the 10-year anniversary of the Cheshire home invasions. Why is this crime still so hard to stomach for some residents years later? We'll talk to a Hartford Current reporter who covered the case closely. Elaine Griffin recently wrote about how the story personally impacted her. She'll join us later. Also this hour, we'll spend time updating you on other news stories. We'll hear about why an undocumented immigrant has sought refuge in a New Haven church to avoid federal immigration enforcement agents. It's a unique but not rare occurrence. We'll check in on a similar story in Denver, Colorado. But first, when's the last time you considered the threat of Zika when making travel plans? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome back to the show vaccine researcher Dr. Paolo Verardi, virologist and associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I think we spoke to you last summer when Zika was all in the news. It's not so much now, but doesn't mean the work is ending for you and other researchers. Tell us what we've learned about Zika since that time.
2: Well, we have mostly good news. So um, the, the outbreak in Brazil, um, um, it has is uh, relatively under c- control. According to the Ministry of Health, there uh, infections this past summer are, are down ninety five percent, and even for other mosquito borne diseases like dengue, uh, there was a reduction ninety percent. Unfortunately, f- for Brazil, we had a little spiking yellow fever, which is another flavivirus related to Zika. Um, but you know, with that, we also had a, a noticeably you know a, a decrease in cases of microcephaly in um, other congenital uh, diseases. Uh, that seems to be the general trend in South America, in Central America, in the Caribbean, in Mexico. Uh, that's all good news. There was a little bit of a spike in a couple of countries like Argentina, Peru, in Ecuador. Um, but mostly, you know, good news. In the U.S., the news are good as well. We had about 5,000 travel-related cases, and this year, we just had 175, mm-hmm. so... Uh,
0: uh, what are some of the reasons for that? Let's start with Brazil, your home country. Why are infections uh, down 95%, as you yeah.
2: mentioned? So, what happens is, as most of the population uh, gets infected, um, people develop immunity to the disease, and therefore it becomes hard for the uh, 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 virus to, to uh, uh, get transmitted. So, that's what's called herd immunity. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, really, you know, uh, uh, is what we were expecting. If you look back at the uh, 2007 and 2013 uh, outbreaks in French Polynesia and Micronesia, that's exactly what happened. So nothing, you know, unexpected there. So it's this effect of herd immunity. Once you develop immunity, once the population develops immunity, it becomes harder, you know, for the cycle of transmission.
0: So places like the United States did not see the type of outbreak like Brazil did. So people here still at risk? Is that why it's important to keep working on these vaccines?
2: But people here are at risk, so we did have some very uh, small a small number of local transmission cases in uh, Florida and in Texas last year. We haven't had anything so far this year, and quite frankly, I don't expect really to have it. Um, but most of the uh, concern really comes from traveling to, to places where you still have active you know Zika transmission. So uh, that will be, you know, the concern really for most Americans.
0: Now, your lab is one of many that are working on uh, a vaccine for Zika. How far have you gotten in the last year? I think you were starting to work on it in early 2016.
2: exactly. I started working very early on. And in in terms of vaccines, again, you know, most of the news are very good. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll get back to what I'm doing. But let me tell you a little bit about some of the current vaccines that are in actual clinical trials. So we have... um, Two major vaccines, uh, they're sort of the low-hanging fruit, so they're vaccines that are quite easy to make. And one is a DNA vaccine, which essentially expresses, you know, certain proteins of uh, 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 Zika virus. They're very, very easy to make. Uh, They're in phase two clinical trials now. They were developed by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health here in, uh, in the U.S., the uh, problem with that vaccine is l- really efficacy. So, these vaccines are not, uh, you know, they usually induce weak immune responses. So, you need uh, a number of different uh, shots, you know, multiple shots. And in fact, we really don't have any licensed DNA vaccines for humans. Another one is an inactivated vaccine. Uh, so, essentially, what you do, you grow the virus into, in cell culture, you purify it, you inactivate the virus so that it doesn't, you know, uh, replicate. Uh, so, it's the same process as the polio inactivated vaccine um and the, the U.S Army here in the U.S developed a uh, 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 there's an activated vaccine in partnership now with the um, French pharmaceutical comp- company Sanofi Pasteur mm-hmm. and they're in phase one uh, right now uh the bay the the major disadvantage of this type of vaccines is really the cost you know, so Zika grows very bad, you know doesn't really grow very well in tissue in cell culture so uh, um, um, cost is one of the concerns. Uh, so it may be appropriate for travelers like, you know, here in the U.S. going to affected areas. It probably will not be, uh, you know, appropriate for uh, the people where, you know, uh, 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 Zika is uh, endemic now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, in fact, you know, there is a little bit of a controversy about Sanofi Pasteur. Um, regarding fair pricing and uh, exclu- uh, ex- an exclusive license.
0: That but means, I think the New York Times reported on this last week that uh, the U.S. Army is working in collaboration with Sanofi Pasteur, and while they're working in development, they have the green light to really put any price on the vaccine that's developed. Is that right?
2: Exactly. And in fact, you know, uh, six senators, including our own Senator Blumenthal here, Submitted a letter to Sanofi Mm -hmm. uh, requesting clarifications, and uh, Sanofi actually just responded last week. Um, I think it's still unclear, you know, what will come out out of of this controversy. But you see, the cost, you know, for this type of vaccine is really know, a major deal. So um, there are other vaccines, you know, uh, under consideration. In fact, a number of them in phase one clinical trials. the good news is that in at least in animal models, these vaccine, uh, the majority of these vaccines actually protect fetuses from congenital uh, disease. The next step really is going what's called phase, a phase three t- trial. Uh, so this is when you test the efficacy of the vaccine. So you have to have a placebo control that doesn't receive the vaccination, and you have to compare that to a group that receives the vaccine. It is a little bit challenging now because, you know, since the outbreak is kind of, you know, uh, diminishing, uh, you have, you know, infection rates that are lower now, so you're going to have to do, you're going to have to vaccinate a lot more people, and it's going to take a little bit longer to Mm -hmm. obtain results, so it's going to be, in other words, more expensive. Um, Because of that, I really don't expect to have, you know, a licensed vaccine at least for two or three years.
0: This is where we live. You're hearing Paulo Verardi, a virologist and associate professor at the University of Connecticut. We're just getting an update on Zika. It was all in the news uh, last summer when the outbreak uh, was uh, serious, especially in places like Brazil. Uh, Many uh, researchers uh, and pharmaceutical companies are working on a vaccine. We wanted to get an update from Paulo, whose lab is also working on a vaccine. Can you update us on the work that you're doing?
2: Absolutely. So one of the challenges with this uh, um, for vaccines for flaviviruses like dengue virus, virus, and Zika virus, is this um, um, potential problem that, 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 that there is. For example, for dengue virus, if there are actually four different serotypes, or lit- literally types of dengue viruses, and if you have infection by one type of, uh, of the virus, the second time that you get you know, infection by a different type, you actually end up with an enhanced disease. You We have this uh, condition called antibody-dependent enhancement of disease. Um, and Zika is very closely related to uh, dengue virus, so there is a concern. And in, in fact, some in vitro st- some studies in mice show that, that this enhancement of disease and can take place. So we have to take that into account when designing vaccines uh, and vaccine strategies because we don't want to you know, vaccinated a group and actually predispose them to more severe disease because you know, if they, for example, get infected by dengue virus later on, so that's one of the things that we have to do. So you know, the the harder sweet fruit at the top of the tree is a little bit, you know, obviously harder to get, right? So we we have to think about cost, we have to think about efficacy, especially in you know, a single dose vaccine, uh, but we also have to think about you know the uh, uh, this enhancement of disease and you know the fact that, like you mentioned, that you know the vaccine should really be targeted to pregnant women. And so safety there, you know, is the, the most important aspect.
0: Now, how do um, researchers, how do you go about uh, testing the efficacy? Uh, because with pregnant women, there are questions about complications if they were to get, um, you know, this, this uh, vaccine in development. How do, you, how do you go about doing that?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, pregnant women is uh, usually a population where vaccine tests are never done uh, uh, you know, there are very few vaccines that actually have even been, uh, they're even suggested for uh, pregnant women, and they really were never tested in clinical trials. It was just, you know, something that, uh, uh, um, um, you know, later on was was introduced to that population. So uh, there is an ethical debate now about, you know, should we include that population or not in these clinical trials? Um, but to get there, you know, first we need to test it in in, in other populations, um uh, women of childbearing age, but not, you know, pregnant. So that's why I know it's going to take a while.
0: And what are you seeing uh, on the the funding uh, realm in terms of, you know, your lab is getting help from the National Institutes of Health. Is that funding still available?
2: The funding is still available. In fact, I just came back from the National Institutes of Health from a review panel there, um... Um, there's a ve- uh, an interest, especially in these new types of vaccines that are going to deal with this enhancement of disease, and that are appropriate for women of uh, you know for pregnant women. Uh, so the funding is there. Uh, I have myself received funding, you know, from NIH, and we are trying you know different um, strategies to avoid this enhancement of disease and to make it you know safer for pregnant women. So a lot of people working on that. Um, um, you know, a, a positive outlook in that sense. What's going to be challenging, again, is uh, to test these vaccines in phase three now.
0: And so just to recap, we can expect to see an FDA-approved vaccine possibly in the next two to three years? Is that too optimistic?
2: <laughs> possibly. It will depend a little bit on this, the outbreak situation there. So you know, it may just have to take a little bit longer if uh, the infection rates you know, uh, are really low.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Paolo Varardi, a virologist and associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Again, his lab is just one of many where researchers are working to develop a Zika vaccine. Paolo, thanks so much for giving us that update. We appreciate it.
2: It's been a pleasure.
0: Now, coming up, we want to update you on some other important stories. After the break, we learn about what steps a New Haven, Norwalk woman rather, has taken after she was set to be deported. Do you think the federal government is prioritizing the right people to be removed from the U.S.? You can join the conversation, 860 275 Two six six. This is where we live. Oh. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Last Thursday, Iglesia de Dios Pentecostal Church, rather, Pentecostal Church welcomed a Norwalk woman to live within the church, serving as a sanctuary to her as she desperately tries to remain in the U.S. Norrie spoke to supporters last night from the church parking lot in New Haven. WSHU reporter Cassandra Bassler recorded Nori's comments to the audience. Thank you to everyone for being here. I'm very grateful for your support, and I'm grateful for all the people who've been by my side at this time. I've come to know more people than I've known before, and I'm grateful for everyone in New Haven. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: Nuri Chavara had federal deportation orders to leave the country last week. Now, supporters of the woman say she should not be forced to leave. What's your take? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, one of uh, Nori's supporters is on the phone with us, Kika Matos, Director of Immigrant Rights and Racial Justice at the Center for Community Change in New Haven. Kika, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. For our listeners who don't know a lot about Nori, tell us about um, her story and how long she's been in the U.S.
4: Sure. Uh, Nori came to the United States 24 years ago um, from Guatemala during a time when there was a constitutional crisis and the president had converted the country into a dictatorship. And so she and her family uh, fled from violent conditions. Um, And she applied for asylum in the United States. Meanwhile, she uh, moved to Connecticut. Uh, She had four kids, all of whom are U.S. citizen kids. She has worked for the last 24 years as a housekeeper. Uh, She has not accrued so much as a traffic violation. Uh, She has a a clean criminal uh, record. And even after her asylum application was denied um, since 2011, uh, immigration and Customs Enforcement has required that she do an annual check-in uh, and since 2011 um, they have issued yearly stays of deportation and um, when she went to her last check-in uh, on the 20th of June, uh, instead of issuing her another stay of deportation, ICE instead told her in front of her nine-year-old daughter, at first they slapped an ankle bracelet on her and then told her in front of the nine-year-old, you need to buy a one-way ticket to Guatemala uh, that has you leaving no later than July 20th. Um, And, you know, I think Nuri did what most parents would do, which uh, was to make the the difficult decision of um, uh, seeking sanctuary in a church in order to not be separated from her four Hmm. U.S. citizen kids, the oldest of whom uh, suffers from a disability. He has cerebral palsy, and uh, Nuri has i been the primary caretaker, primary caretaker, not just for him, but for the rest of her kids.
0: Now, Kika, what does this mean for Nori now that um, she, again, is at this church in New Haven? Um, any risk that ICE could still um, arrest and deport her?
4: So there is a policy that ICE uh, drafted uh, that prohibits them from carrying out uh, deportation uh, actions in what they call sensitive locations, and sensitive locations include churches, hospitals, and schools, um, absent what they call exigent circumstances. Uh, and so she is one of 13 uh, immigrants around the country who have sought and been granted a sanctuary at a church, um, knowing that um, churches are uh, prote- understandably protected uh, places from ICE enforcement proceedings.
0: You said she's now one of 13 immigrants that have sought sanctuary in a church?
4: Yes, that's correct, around the country.
0: Now ICE released a statement uh, last week saying that Nori Chavaria is now a fugitive. Uh, You've been an activist for a long time, Kika, especially down in the the New Haven area. You know, there are people that believe that uh, immigrants like Nori should not be allowed to stay in the country if they have deportation orders. Um, What would you say to them?
4: Uh, look, I would say to them this. First, um, she is not a, a fugitive. ICE knows exactly where she is. She has not removed her ankle bracelet, which means that every step she takes, ICE is monitoring her. Um, she, the day she sought sanctuary, the pastor of the church had a press conference. Um, and her lawyer uh, announcing that Nuri was at the church seeking sanctuary. Her lawyer also contacted ICE to inform them that she was seeking sanctuary at the church. Um, what I would say to people is, you know, irrespective—and this is something that I—well, would- let me first say this. Um, irrespective of people's political leanings, um, what this case uh, has really shed light on is the fact that um, most Americans think that the government got it wrong here and that there are cases that are uh, compelling enough that are deserving of um, some level of release. And Nouris is one of those cases. Um, This is a woman that you want to be neighbors with, you want to be friends with, you want to worship with. She is kind. She is dignified. um, She is gracious. She is loving towards her kids. She is doing, as a mother of a 12-year-old, I would have done the same thing. Right? She is doing what we want parents to do, to fiercely love and protect their children and to do whatever parents can to be with their children. So for the government to say to her, after 24 years of living in this country, which is really her country now, you need to leave, is just morally and ethically repugnant.
0: Now, Kika, uh, what does this mean for her family? Because it doesn't sound like she can leave this church and she's a mother of four, including a child uh, with a disability.
4: So her family now, uh, comes to visit her. Her sister was there yesterday. Her older kids were there two days ago. I mean, if she steps so much as half an inch out of that church, ice can come and take her away. Uh, and so, uh, she has been able to, uh, have family visit her, but, but it really just changes the dynamics for her entire family. Um, it's not easy, as you can imagine, uh, living at a church, but the Iglesia de Dios Pentecostal has gone out of its way to create a loving environment for her. Um, but it's it's very surreal for her family, but they're really happy um, that she's still there and that they can visit her. Um, we're uh, making sure that she, that uh, we are arranging transportation for her kids because she's originally from Norwalk, and now she's relocated to New Haven, so it's a little bit more difficult for her family Um, to be able to visit her. But nonetheless, they are, you know, making huge efforts to make sure that uh, they are constantly uh, with their mother and visiting with her.
0: Now, Kika, uh, before we uh, let you go, I know you have a meeting to attend to. How are you and other community members working with city officials in New Haven? Do you anticipate uh, more immigrants in Nori's shoes may seek sanctuary in local churches if the offer stands? Look, as long as this
4: government continues to carry out what is uh, a bizarre uh, strategy of mass deportations, um, there will be many more cases like Nuri. We have a president now uh, whose uh, immigration policy is entirely focused on trying to deport 11 million undocumented people in this country, uh, and so um, I, I fully expect that more and more immigrants seeking to uh, remain with their families, will be desperately going to churches uh, seeking sanctuary. So, yes, we expect many more cases like this will happen now. Nuri, um, you know, an hour after she sought sanctuary, was visited by Governor Malloy, um, who fully supports her. The next day, uh, Senators Murphy and Blumenthal and Congresswoman DeLauro visited with her, and they're really supportive of her. Yesterday, the mayors of New Haven and Norwalk Uh, visited with her and they too have publicly expressed um, their support. So we are looking at a a series of our public officials who are clear that what the government, federal government is trying to do to one of their own is wrong. And they've also expressed that they're going to do whatever they need to do to fight to have a remain in the United
0: States. Kika Matos, Director of Immigrant Rights and Racial Justice at the Center for Community Change. Thank you, Kika, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, today we're talking about a Norwalk woman, again, Norwich Avaria, who uh, sought refuge uh, in a New Haven church last week. She had deportation orders to leave after uh, a few years of getting a grant- the federal government granting her a stay, allowing her to stay in the U.S. Uh, on humanitarian grounds. Um, that uh, option was up for her, and she was set to be deported last week. Instead, she's now living within Iglesia de Dios uh, church in New Haven. Um, as Kika mentioned, this is not, um, this is not unique. There have been other examples of individuals seeking sanctuary at houses of worship. Um, joining the conversation now is Julie Gonzalez, a policy director at the Meyer Law Office in Denver, Colorado. She was a paralegal for a case, a woman by the name of Jeanette Visguera, who also sought refuge in a church in Denver. Julie, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about Jeanette Visguera. Well, Jeanette uh, is
5: a longtime community activist here uh, in Colorado um, who first came into the country uh, back in 1997, Christmas of 1997, um, with her then husband and her uh, young child. Uh, she then um, uh, had three U.S. citizen children, um, was deported fo- uh, fi- following a minor traffic um, uh, stop Uh appealed her, her order of deportation, um, fought her case publicly was one of the first people here in Colorado to go, uh, to go, uh, public with her case. A lot of times beforehand people, uh, would, would be very quiet and very, um, uh, ashamed about the fact that they were in deportation proceedings. And Jeanette was really one of the first folks, um, back in 2009 to, uh, go public with her story. Um, she, she appealed her case, uh, and while she appealed her case, um, her mother uh, passed away uh, or was dying uh, in Mexico, and Jeanette made the decision to go and, um, and visit her. Um, in so doing, she abandoned her appeal. When, after Jeanette's mother passed away, uh, Jeanette came back into the United States and thereafter was, was granted a series of stays of removal. Um, and, and, and when you
0: say "stay" is a removal for people unfamiliar with the process, it means that the federal government gives them a year or two where they're not going to be deported.
5: And initially, you know, Jeanette's stays were you know uh, six months, sev- seven months, nine months, <laughs> and then and then finally she got to a place where they were uh, uh, granted for a year at a time. Uh, she did receive. Um, five, six, six actual stays of removal and was um, in the process of applying for uh, a seventh extension. Um, She is the mother of three U.S. citizen children. She actually also does have um, an immigration application pending uh, as a victim of crime. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that set Jeanette's case apart um, here legally is the fact that she had she had a, a pending application um, to legalize her status with the U.S. government.
0: Uh, you the, know, it, go ahead. Oh, Julie, I'm sorry. You said that she'd had several stays of removal, so they gave her six to seven to nine months to remain in the country. That final application was denied late last year. What changed? Uh, our
5: president. And, you know, the, the only thing that had changed in Jeanette's, uh, in Jeanette's immigration history was um, while she was on these stays of removal, um, uh, here at the Meyer Law Office, um, we, we submitted this application um, for her as a victim of crime. It's called a U-Visa, and it's a very limited uh, immigration benefit um, only given to people who have um, been victims of serious crimes who then go and co- uh, cooperate with law enforcement issues, uh, uh, in- officials in the investigation and the prosecution of that crime. Jeanette, um, was uh, such a victim, um, received an author, a, a certification from law enforcement officials here locally in Denver, uh, submitted that application. That was one thing that changed in her case. The only other thing, and that would be one thing that in you know, any other circumstance would be beneficial, and yet um, when our new president, uh, Donald Trump, was elected, um, you know, she, uh, her stay was thereafter. Uh, denied on February the 15th of this year.
0: This is where we live. Uh, We're looking at a case in Denver of a woman who sought sanctuary in a local church, very similar to a case uh, just last week here in Connecticut of of a Norwalk woman. On the phone with us, Julie Gonzalez, policy director in the Meyer Law Office in Denver and paralegal for Jeanette Visgera. Julie, we understand that she was in a Denver church for almost three months and then she was granted a two-year stay. How is that possible?
5: You know, Jeanette's a fighter, and Jeanette, when she walked into that church uh, the morning of uh, her check in with ICE officials, um, she made the decision to stay here and fight for her children. Um, She made the decision to um, continue to try to seek relief from her pending immigration application. Um, And throughout the entire uh, time that she was in sanctuary, You know, she she didn't stop coordinating rides for her kids to go to school and to get picked up from school. She didn't stop uh, organizing uh, here in her community. She was visited by several public officials. Um, And one of the things that we saw was that the um, the, the ICE has continued uh, to – Try to deport her no matter what um, she tries to do, even though she continues to organize. Um, thanks to uh, support from both Congressman Polis here in in, um, in Colorado, as well as Senator, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett here out of Colorado. Um, they submitted private bills uh, in both houses of Congress uh, on her behalf. And thanks to those uh, that private legislation, she was granted a stay. At the same time, though, ICE has uh, shifted its policy and is, no lo- is now saying that they will no longer grant stays to individuals uh, who, are, who are seeking sanctuary and who um, submit these pri- have these uh, uh, elected officials submit private bills on their behalf. And so, you know, that's something that uh, Jeanette and we and many people across the country continue to fight is that change in policy, um, because it... it, it, it just denies uh, immigrants their humanity, and it denies um, immigrants their due process.
0: I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, immigration attorney with Connecticut perspective. Anthony Collins is with Collins and Martin in Wethersfield. Anthony, welcome back to the show.
1: Uh, good morning, yes.
0: Hello. So you were able to hear a little bit about um, a particular case in Denver, Jeanette Vizgera, a woman who was set to be uh, deported. She sought a sanctuary in a church in Denver, very similar to what we're seeing uh, in the case of Nuri Chavaria uh, last week in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, Julie mentioned something called a private bill that was uh, able to be put forward in Congress by a Colorado representative, and now the, her client, Julie's client, Jeanette Vizguera, is able to stay for another two years. Uh, what do we know about this private bill option, and is it completely off the table, as Julie mentioned?
1: Uh, private bills um, generally, well, I think there's a rule in Congress that uh, private bills will not be um accepted or, or passed by Congress and signed by the president, but they are uh, a tactic to bring the case to the, ten- to the attention of ICE, and ICE at times will respect uh, the fact that a private bill has been presented. Um, and if I believe it's the head of the uh, uh, um, House of Representatives the uh, makes note of that, then um, ICE will also issue a stay under those circumstances.
0: Uh, we've heard two of our guests say that what has changed is a policy under the Trump administration. As an immigration attorney, Anthony, what are you seeing in terms of your clients who ha- in previous years have been able to get stays of removal, meaning their deportation is delayed for up to a year or two? Um, what is happening now when their applications are up for review again?
1: Um, I'd, I'd, let me just mention, I, I was referring to the Senate uh, majority leader. Uh, ICE has a tremendous amount of power or in terms of the use of stays of, of deportation prior to trump and under obama um ice was using the grant stays of uh, of deportation to uh, allow people who had no serious criminal records here who had been uh here a long uh, family in the united states they were granting those stays by using those stays ice was fostering uh, a relationship within the immigrant communities and I think it was very effective in terms of uh, the inter uh, action between ICE and the immigrant community in connecticut so right you'
0: so you're saying that your clients were um, reporting to ICE when they were supposed to, and they knew exactly where they were at the time
1: yes, and it was very effective and, and, um, people who you know deserved to stay in most cases were were granted a stay um, and uh, ICE then could dedicate their resources to people that should be removed, people with criminal records and or who had been here only a short period of time who had violated their status. So um, now there's, this case in Norwalk kind of exemplifies that ICE's interest in fostering that relationship uh, is gone, um, and it's hard for me to understand why their uh, resources to uh, that particular case, when there are so many others that uh, uh, perhaps should be focused on.
0: So, what are you giving? What kind of advice are you giving your clients if, um, if there's maybe they're on a stay of removal and they need to report?
1: Tell people to report um, if they have been they're under an order of supervision. Uh, many people who are reporting now um, are not being granted stays, and in fact are uh, being. Um, fitted with GPS devices, and then given a limited period of time to uh, buy a ticket, uh, make arrangements to return to their country uh, while they're on those GPS devices. So that's happening on on a daily basis in Hartford.
0: And Anthony, can you clarify for us if someone is deported from the US, how soon before they can apply uh, to come back to this country if they go that route?
1: It really depends on uh, the person's status and uh, when they left the United States and their uh, family connections in the United States. But typically under uh, 1996 legislation, most people are subject to what's called the 10-year bar. They can't come back for up to 10 years. Uh, There is a a limited waiver for um, people who have U.S. citizen or permanent resident spouses or parents in the United States. Uh, Unfortunately, if you have children here, you cannot get a waiver use that relationship uh, as a basis for that that waiver uh, to come back uh, before the 10-year period.
0: Uh, We were talking about uh, certain uh, individuals who come forward to call attention uh, to their case. And in the past, as someone that I've covered a lot of uh, immigration stories um, over the years in the past, when that happened, um, oftentimes ICE would then, if there was publicity about a particular individual in their case, ICE would then grant a stay. That's no longer seems to be happening when we look at this Nori Chavaria case. Anthony, what have you observed? Uh,
1: Yeah, that is uh, That relates back to what I was saying before in terms of their their power to grant these days. uh, um, They don't seem to be too concerned about the bad publicity anymore. Uh, But by doing that, they're destroying this relationship, uh, I believe, that they had developed uh, prior to Trump uh, with the immigrant community. And I think that's unfortunate.
0: Um, At the same time, we should uh, say that there are um, Americans in this country who believe that the government is doing the right thing by deporting these individuals if they're not here with documentation.
1: Well, it's a matter of resources. How much uh, money does ICE have in terms of deporting 11 million people? Um, I think that Obama had a right in in one sense in that uh, the priority should be the types of people that I think we all agree shouldn't be here. Those with serious criminal records. Um, or with very few ties to the United States and who have only been here for a short period of time. Um, with that in mind, I think everybody anticipates uh, that there will eventually be some legislation, uh, and the expectation is that people who have been here for a long time, who have contributed to the community, who have family here, uh, hopefully will receive, receive some sort of benefit from future legislation, not necessarily citizenship, but uh, perhaps. Uh, the ability to stay here.
0: Well, I want to thank Anthony Collins, an immigration attorney from Collins & Martin in Wethersfield, Connecticut. Uh, Thank you, Anthony, for your perspective today. Thank you. I wanted to go back quickly uh, to Julie Gonzalez, who's joining us from Denver, Colorado, by phone. She's policy director at the Meyer Law Office in Denver. She's a paralegal for a woman by the name of Jeanette Visguera who sought sanctuary in a Denver church for almost three months and was able to get a stay of removal, which means she wasn't, she's not going to be deported for another two years thanks to a private bill in Congress. Julie, what happens for Jeanette uh, after those two years are up? You know, hopefully we'll have a
5: different administration by that time. You know, um, her stay is is uh, granted until uh, March the 15th of 2019, um, and so I know it's a little soon, but um, hopefully we'll be well on our way to a, a, a new administration or at least uh, some change uh, at the at the congressional level with with um, with a bill uh, that would uh, uh, you know put immigration reform on the table. Um, Separately, you know, in, in Jeanette's individual case, she also does have that uh, pending U visa, um, and so that could be an option for her as well. Um, but really what we need to see um, across the board is um, our elected officials to act and uh, that we have not seen uh, any sort of action um, from either side of Congress uh, since uh, 2011, I think, is... is a uh, it's really disappointing, um, and, um, and and we do need action uh, now because you know these cases of individuals um, seeking sanctuary um, who you know have have long demonstrated themselves to be um, contributing members to our community. I think underscores uh, the way in which ICE at this point is just um, seeking to, to deport as many human beings as possible without any sort of regard. Uh, to the community ties, the familial ties, um, the economic ties uh, that uh, that immigrants bring to, to our society.
0: And we'll have to leave it there. Julie Gonzalez, Policy Director at the Meyer Law Office in Denver, Colorado. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up, it's been 10 years since a mother and her two daughters were murdered during a home invasion in Cheshire. Hartford Current reporter Elaine Griffin covered the criminal ta- criminal trials of the two men convicted in the murders. She'll join us to talk about that case. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 10 years ago on Sunday, Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her two daughters Haley and Michaela were murdered in their Cheshire home. The men who killed them would be sent to death row until the state repealed capital punishment. Now they remain in prison for life. The only surviving member of the immediate Pettit family is William Pettit, who became a state lawmaker. Our next guest covered this case extensively for the Hartford Current. Elaine Griffin is now a state editor with the, the Hartford Current, And she recently wrote an article about the experience of covering uh, the criminal trials of the the two men convicted in uh, those murders. Elaine, welcome to where we live. Thanks
3: for having me. Uh, Is it surprising to you it's been 10 years already? Well, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. I feel like I've written so much about that case, um, I felt like it would never end. Um, However, yeah, 10 years uh, since that horrible case. And uh, so many people still still talk about it so much. Back
0: then, you were a legal affair, a legal affairs reporter at the Current. You covered uh, the criminal trial. What was that like to be in the courtroom each day?
3: Well, it was a very uh, it was a case that so many people were watching. Um, there was a push to have a change of venue uh, because uh, it was held in New Haven, which was pretty close to Cheshire, and there was a lot of concern that they wouldn't be able to find an impartial jury, uh, but they did. Um, and uh, the case just had so much um, publicity attached to it uh, nationwide, uh, and it was one of those cases that um, you know that you just have to cover it from start to finish, and you can't leave anything out.
0: What was it about this case, you know, from your perspective, that really caught people's attention and the fact that this case still remains with some people, you know, it still bothers them when they think about what happened to this family?
3: Well, I've had to think about that a lot because I've covered a lot of different cases in court. And you say to yourself, you know, no victim is more valuable than the other, right? You know, I mean, everybody is somebody's father, somebody's mother, somebody's child. Um, but what set Cheshire apart from a lot of the other crimes was that it was sort of everyone's worst nightmare, two unknown people breaking into your home in the middle of the night torturing your family and killing them. And that's sort of everybody's nightmare, you know, someone breaking in and, and doing that to your family. Um, and uh, you can't overlook the fact that um, the Pettits were an extraordinary family. Uh, Dr. Pettit was a well-known physician. His wife was a very devoted school nurse. The, the children over at Cheshire Academy loved her. I just recently reread a story I wrote about Jennifer, and I was just— Uh, amazed again at how much the kids loved her and how much she took in those kids. And their daughters were um, really uh, active in fundraising and uh, very um, sensitive to um, social causes. And it was an extraordinary family. Uh, take us
0: back to 2007, if my if my memory is uh, right, uh, around that time there was a movement within the state legislature to begin the, the process of repealing the death penalty. And then this case happens. How did that? How did the Cheshire home invasion impact this debate about whether to repeal the death penalty?
3: Well, that's right. Um, if you remember, in 2009, um, lawmakers voted to abolish uh, the death penalty, and uh, uh, then Governor Jody Rowell, um vetoed the bill. and uh, that was right uh, that was two thousand and nine, so it was right before the Hayes the Stephen Hayes trial was about to begin. So I think the feeling um, in Connecticut was essentially that uh, these two men, Joshua Ksar and Stephen Hayes, were like the the poster men for the death penalty, that if anybody should get the death penalty, it should be these two men. So I think it um, even though there was this push uh, to to repeal um, I think ultimately it couldn't be done um, until this case was was heard.
0: You said that they were almost the poster men uh, to why the death penalty should be around. But so much has been uh, looked into, uh, you know, research and studies to show that the death penalty really, the capital punishment really isn't a deterrent uh, to crime. But yet people still want to hold on to that for certain individuals like these two men.
3: Well, the trend across the nation is definitely uh, to abolish the death penalty. So I think that sort of speaks for how people ultimately do feel about the death penalty. People are concerned about those that are wrongly convicted getting executed. Um, we've had cases in Connecticut here where um, we've had people in jail for many, many years who did not commit the crime. So I think there is some, some hesitation. And um, ultimately here, uh, look now. you know, We went through both of those trials. Not only were they uh, guilt. And innocent trials, but they were also death penalty trials. So there were two phases to the trials. And uh, ultimately, these two men now have life sentences. So when you think about um, what, putting the families essentially through four trials um, to have them get life ultimately, um, I'm not sure what to completely make of that.
0: Elaine Griffin, state editor with the Hartford Courant. Back in 2007, she was a legal affairs reporter, covered uh, both trials of the men uh, that were later found uh, guilty of the murders of Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her two daughters, Haley and Michaela. As a reporter, how did this impact you to be in the courtroom each and every day? I mean, the details were horrific.
3: Yeah, um, you know, I, like I had told you before I had covered other trials. Um, there was a a Guilford homicide that was terrible. A uh, mother knew two her two children were killed. So, it wasn't so much um, it wasn't so much that I hadn't been involved in that kind of covered before. I think in this particular case, um the the crime scene photos were just horrific and just the details of hours and hours of torture in that house um, and just the overall unsettling feeling that people had across the state, um, knowing all of that um, and sitting there and listening to all of that every day, I think it, you know, it's going to get to you after a while.
0: How did the Hartford Current? uh, what was the decision in terms of how you would cover this story 10 years later? How did you go about doing that, you and your team?
3: Well, I think um, we had uh, Josh Kovner and Dave Altamari, they did a terrific job. They went ahead and talked to some people who had a direct role in the case. They talked to the bank teller, Mary Lyons. They talked to Haley Pettit's coach. They talked to um, the minister. And they did these amazing interviews uh, with people reflecting on just how that crime impacted them and now. And then Danielle Altamari did a terrific story uh, talking to Dr. Pettit. And uh, she did a terrific job of showing his resilience uh, since the crime
0: have you heard from any readers who question all this attention on this particular case and and ask why uh, more isn't given to other um homicides that happen um in the state
3: oh yes i've had that over the years um and my answer to them is um if they read the hartford current they see that we are indeed in the courtroom for many cases um shortly after uh, the Cheshire home invasion. I went over to federal court and covered a case um, in Bridgeport where um, three people were killed as well. So I think it's you know it's just the widespread publicity that everybody gave that case. Um, but the current does a, a you know a good job of trying to get into as many cases as we can. And um, I think uh, in a lot of ways um, we have to ask ourselves every day you know why is this story important? What is the impact of this story on the public? and what can we do in telling the story to perhaps affect change that things don't happen again.
0: And Elaine, we just have a couple minutes left, but what are some of the remaining questions from uh, this terrible tragedy? Uh, I know there was scrutiny on the Cheshire Police Department and um, their response to the crime. Also, uh, the the records that the State Parole Board may or may not have seen when they paroled these individuals.
3: Mm. Well, we're hoping that um, someday, uh, Cheshire Police uh, will uh, speak freely about um, how they went about in their response. Um, we've wanted to know if they ever went back and evaluated their response to the Cheshire case and if they did do some sort of evaluation, uh, if, that, if those records could be made public. Um, the state is trying to do a better job of sharing information uh, between agencies uh, when uh, parole, deciding to parole someone. Um, and, and I think the state is trying to move forward on that. I know there's been a pledge to share information um, so that they don't miss people um, as, as they're paroled. Uh, I think there are questions, too, um, about the crime itself. Um, one of the things I tried to ask Stephen Hayes when I interviewed him uh, in prison, uh, he had sent some letters to the current uh, claiming that he had killed some other people. So I felt the need to go interview him and talk to him about that. And one of the questions I wanted to know from Stephen Hayes was who ultimately uh, lit the match uh, that set that house on fire.
0: Did he give you the answer?
3: He did not. He said uh, they know who's culpable for what. Mm. So no, we didn't get an answer to that.
0: Elaine, these uh, kinds of stories are hard to stomach. To the general public, uh, reporters have to oftentimes really dive deep into the details. Is there enough uh, mental health support for reporters when they cover cases like this?
3: I think um, there's been a lot more attention to secondhand information. Um, I think there's sort of this perception that if you weren't out there on the front lines, uh, that you could, you know, you're only affected if you're out there on the front lines, seeing it for yourself. But I think more attention um, in light of um, a number of mass shootings across the country uh, has drawn more attention to not only journalists covering these cases, but jurors who are uh, sitting in on these cases and having to listen to the testimony, Uh, court personnel. You've got uh, court clerks. You've got um, uh, judicial marshals. You have... People who are in that courtroom listening to those things every day, and all of those people are hearing that information. So I do think there has been more attention. I did do a story about uh, jurors were offered help after the um, trials. And um, I've been encouraged uh, after Newtown, um, uh, our editor at the Hartford Current, he offered help to anybody who needed it there. And so it's been very encouraging to see uh, more attention being put to that.
0: Elaine Griffin, state editor at the Hartford Current, she recently wrote about what it was like to cover the criminal trials of the two men who murdered um, Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her daughters Haley and Michaela. You can read that at thecurrent.com uh, she writes, Still Haunted by Cheshire Case, Stark Images, A Sense of Loss. Elaine Griffin, thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmprorg slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Thanks for
3: listening.